Hey guys, if you're working more than 40 hours per week and you have to do that in order to be good at your job, but you no longer want to spend that much time at work and maybe you want to spend more time with your family, we've got an amazing episode with you from Eric Brewer who transitioned from an 80-hour-a-week job to making $75,000 on his very first wholesale deal, which is a strategy where you can make big finder's fees for finding rundown properties and passing them off to an investor. My name is David Lecko, and I created a process that's helped people close 10,000 deals in all 50 states called Deal Machine. And Ryan Haywood is my co-host. He actually quit his job in 2019 when his sales commissions got cut, and he took a 14-day challenge to get his first deal, and he actually made $8,500 and has gone on to do 412 deals in St. Joseph, Missouri. And this is the podcast to help you 10x your income and replace your W-2. I know you guys are going to get a lot from this episode. Hey, Eric, it's great to have you on. And I know that you made $75,000 on that first wholesale deal, which I want to hear about. But talk to me about this transition from working 80 hours per week and I believe having your first child. How did you end up finding this option in real estate? Yeah. Um, first, I appreciate you guys having me here today. I'm excited to, to spend the next half hour to 45 minutes with you and um, maybe share a little bit of my story that could serve as inspiration um, for someone else. Um, so the, the, the way that I discovered um, real estate and the pathway was um, the car business was very good to me. I, I, uh, I was a bit of a lost soul when I found that job and uh, started at the, the car dealership as a $7 an hour employee parking cars. And um, I did so after I had served in the military. So I served at a car dealership the only way I knew how, which was the same way I did at the U.S. Army. So I showed up early, I worked late, I took orders, and uh, I greeted everybody with a, a yes, sir, and a yes, ma'am. And uh, that earned me several promotions very early on at the dealership. Um, and uh, the biggest one, and you said 10X, I'm actively reading a book right now called 10X is Easier Than 2X. And it gives you a framework to discover what your next 10X is, right? Ryan had one when he quit his W-2 and he made probably uh, more money in one deal than he had made maybe in a couple months of commissions. And that was a 10X jump for him. And my 10X at the car dealership was I had captured the attention of the sales manager because I had been working in the service department and was doing a really good job. Um, for me, I was just following orders, showing up early, working late, but it caught the attention of the sales manager and he started recruiting me to sales, which scared the living daylights out of me. And if you're listening to this, fear is a good thing. You should follow fear. Generally, fear operates as a North Star to guide you in the direction of your, your purpose and your calling and what may be a 10X jump for you. And I said no 10 times to the sales gig. No, no, no. I'm not a salesman. You guys are pushy. You know, I, I work in service. I take care of customers. I had a, a relatively skewed perception of what sales was back then. Um, or I had a good perception and I was 100% accurate and I just wanted to do it a different way. And um, one day I was having lunch with one of the sales reps and I literally looked at the guy and I was like, this guy's making three times what I'm making. I work harder than he does. I think I'm smarter than he is. And dang it, 
I'm a little bit more likable. And I called the sales manager after that lunch and said, okay, I'll do it. And I was scared to death. I had no idea how I was going to do it. I was very worried that I was going to fail. I was leaving a good job with a good income, even though I was going to the same dealership. Once I took this sales job, my other job would be filled and it was gone. And uh, I started on June 17th. It was my first day on the sales floor and I was salesman of the month by June 30th. I outsold everybody else that had been selling for 17 more days than me. I sold more than them in less than half the month. And um, then I was salesman of the month for like 23 consecutive months until I got promoted to sales manager and then finance manager and then general sales manager. And then I was overseeing eventually five different locations. And as you can imagine, any sales management job, particularly one that was overseeing multiple locations, I was working an awful lot. And uh, the the car business is, has a way of taking its toll on your spirit. Most people don't enjoy the process of buying a car, and most people don't enjoy the process of selling one either. It's it's like it's like uh, modern warfare. It's like a slugfest and a a battle for two and a half hours, right? And um, it just so happens, like around year seven or year eight of me being in the car business at the peak of my career, when I was making the most money, working the most hours, drinking the most alcohol, smoking the most weed sleeping the least, not being healthy in my relationships and found out I was having a child. And it was a pivotal moment in my life where I had to make the decision if I wanted to continue to be a good car guy or if I, I wanted to show up in a big way as a dad, and I, you know, made the decision I wanted to be a good dad. And uh, that meant I couldn't be a car guy anymore. One of those had to suffer um for me to be the best version of the other one. So I got out of the car business and I didn't know what I was going to do next. And I was scared. I didn't know, but I was lucky enough that I made enough money and had saved enough that I didn't need to go right back to work. So I took four or five months and uh, consulted with some people that I trust um, and uh, discovered that real estate would be a good it would, it would force me to grow, learn a new skill set, but it would also leverage the skills that I had acquired after being in the car business for eight years. And um, one of the things that made us really, really good in the car business, we're like a relatively small town, not as small as St. Joe where Ryan is, but your PA is a little speck on the map, right? Yeah, it's close. And um, we were like the number one Toyota dealership in the entire Central Atlantic region. So outselling dealerships in Washington, D.C., major metro markets of Virginia, Philadelphia. And um, one of the reasons that we had a big advantage was our understanding of finance. We could help people with bad credit, no credit, negative equity, positive equity. Uh, we were like one of the pioneers of leasing back then when like people didn't really lease cars back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And really what that meant is you can get in a sixty, seventy thousand dollars Toyota 4Runner for like a $300 payment. So we created a pathway for people to enjoy more of a vehicle than maybe what they thought they could afford. So when I got into real estate, I said, I want to really learn finance. So I got into the mortgage business. And uh, this is like 2005. And I started basically cold calling refi leads 
at a place called Comfort Home Mortgage. Um, and turns out I was making more money than I made in the car business, which I thought was a lot. And I was working like half as much. I was like, this is it. I mean, this is, this is exactly what I thought it was going to be. It was literally, I never met any of my customers. They were internet leads for people that had an 8% interest rate. And I was selling them a 5% interest rate. It's like, this is easy. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I was doing really well. And after doing that for like seven months, my mentor and who turned out to be my very best friend in life, Craig Rich called me because he was selling the car dealership that he owned that I worked at for eight years where he taught me everything I knew, had faith in me to be a salesperson when I was scared out of my mind and led me to be, the, still to this day, I think it's the top producing sales rep in company history, 20 years removed. And he's like, hey, I heard a radio commercial about real estate and I want to do it. And I want to see if you want to work with me. And I like dropped what I was doing. I mean, this is like, this guy's God to me at this point, right? It was probably the hardest part about leaving the car business was I felt like I was kind of turning my back on him a little bit. So this was like, you know, God's work that he's got Craig calling me again. And I'm now in real estate. He's thinking about real estate. He knew I was out of the car business. And we had lunch the next day and he told me his vision for how this real estate company would unfold. And I was like, all right, I'm in. And uh, February of 2006, uh, him and I opened CR Realty, and uh, we decided we were going to start buying and flipping homes. And uh, it started at a brick-and-mortar real estate investing school called Investors United in Baltimore County. And uh, it's a year-long curriculum. It's like 10000 bucks, and you go twice a week for two hours and they teach you marketing, contract engineering. Back then, if you can imagine 2006, list building was done at the courthouse with a piece of scratch paper. And so they taught you how to do all that and then how to dispo your deals. And I remember we went to like 10 classes and they were like, all right, we're going to talk about sales now for the next eight weeks. Me and Craig looked at each other. I think we're good on sales. We don't need to learn negotiating. Let's get out of here and go pull a list. And uh, that's what we did. We got out of there, started marketing and uh, sending out mailers and bought our first house shortly after. What was the criteria of the list that you started sending mailers to on your first, this first? Oh my goodness, man. I don't remember. Um, probably, I, I, I think I remember a lot of like pre-foreclosure leads. Um Back then, uh, we even bought a book. I can't remember the name of the book, but it was basically written on how to market and door knock pre-foreclosures. And we followed that blueprint and then um, some of the information we got from the, the Investors United and had an assignment contract, right? We understood uh, the assignment language. We had a contract. We were ready to go. We had a little bit of money. We had a little bit of information and a whole lot of gumption. So you called and, you uh, cold called all these pre foreclosure leads, or do you start mailing? Uh, we uh, door knocked a little bit, which was scary. And I think initially what we did was a whole lot of direct mail, and then simultaneously we were working the MLS because we did have. I mean he he had plenty of money, mm -hmm. so we could actually pay for stuff, renovate it. Um, so we we started with a little bit of like direct to seller pre foreclosure marketing. And we were working the MLS pretty heavy. So the first deal that you found um, that was a 
ended up being a wholesale deal. Is that how you found that one as well? It came off of this pre-foreclosure? No, that deal we actually got from working our sphere. So I'm telling everybody, hey, I'm not in the car business anymore. I'm in the real estate business. If you find a deal, let me know. And a good auctioneer friend of mine, I'm actually doing a deal with him this morning. Uh, we've probably done a hundred since then. He goes, I got a deal for you. It's going to auction in three months, but they'd sell it now. They, they're they kind of anxious. They want to get out. Um, and he brought me the deal and uh, we negotiated back and forth. And I thought I was getting a, a great price and the story unfolds from there. But yeah, so the first real deal we got um, that ended up kind of being wholesale, it's a kind of a tricky little story the way it worked out. But um, yeah, it was kind of direct the seller through an auctioneer who was a um, friend of a friend of a friend. He was actually, he was the, like the best friend of our attorney who helped us set up our LLC. And uh, he like made the introduction and said, hey, if you come across deals, let us know. Because in the car business, you went and bought cars at auction. That's where you got a good deal. Yeah. So auctioneers were a logical place for us to start. And uh, he brought us a deal and we were able to agree on a price. Amazing. So you were a very successful car person after you got out of the military and you got promoted from service to sales, but not right away. You had to realize that the person sitting across from you at lunch had the job that you were being offered and he was less good looking, less likable and less smart. So you're like, okay, I, I think I could finally do this. Um, and, and you followed your fear yeah. uh, as a North star. I really liked the way you said that. So that when you were, when you were having a baby, you knew you just couldn't work 80 hours a week anymore. And so you, you wanted to find something different. You found out, you know, you could kind of, uh, you know, buy and sell homes just like you bought and sold cars at the auction. And uh, you wrote letters to people's homes that uh, were going to be auctioned, but maybe they provided the certainty or they, they preferred the certainty of just selling it with you now, you know, getting what they could for it and, and moving on. And uh, what, when, when did your first wholesale deal come in? Because you said you knew about the assignment contract. And so for those listening, if you guys don't know, you know, the, the wholesaling doesn't actually require you to buy the property yourself, but you get it under contract like you would buy it. And then you, you can assign it to an investor and you would make an assignment fee. And so um, when did that actually end up happening for you, Eric, with that first wholesale deal? Yeah, so now that I think about it, right, since we bailed on like the whole second half of the year of the course that we paid money for, that's probably when they covered like how to sell your deal and we never showed up for that class. So we, we looked at every deal like through a, a wholesale lens of pricing, but our intent was to buy it, renovate it and resell, right? Um, and I never really had clarity on why, but now that I tell the story, it's because I didn't show up for the the second half of the, the 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 wholesale course that they were teaching that taught you how to sell it. And um, so this deal we bought, it was like 70,000 bucks. I think we paid for the house. We thought we'd put 40 in it and sell it for like 160. That's a good deal, mm -hmm. right? And um, we scheduled to go to settlement. And I think it was like at the day of settlement or maybe even unfortunately just after where a title company disclosed to us um, that it was commercial zoning, um, commercial highway. And then I was like, well, what's that mean? I don't know what that means. So I talked to my realtor who was helping us like find contractors and renovate it, helped us you know, decide what ARV was going to be. 
And he's like, bro, that's a problem. You can't sell that to an FHA, VA, conventional borrower. Like you can't get, you know, there's all these burn letters and it's a mess. So we're like, oh gosh, well now what do we do? So the more we learned about why we couldn't sell it to a conventional buyer, um, what seemed like it was a very unfortunate set of circumstances. And this is the other thing that if you get to know me is I always find the good in everything. Um, I am a eternal optimist, right? And uh, we just for we were just fearless in our desire to find the positive in this. And we were like, well, the problem with commercial highway is you have to have an acre of land for it to be worth a bunch of money and you only got a quarter acre. We're like, okay, so you're saying there's a shot, right? All we got to do is get to an acre. You know, there's a house, there's a house, there's a house. All we need is four of these. And then we got an acre and you're telling me an acre of zoned commercial highways worth a million bucks? Like, that's great news. That's not bad. So the bad news is I can't sell it today for 160. The good news is I might be able to sell it in six months for a million bucks. So um, at the time, my partner, Craig, took the bull by the horns and he literally tracked down all of the neighbors and it took like four months. We bought the three neighboring homes um, and we ended up being all in for like 600 grand. And then Lo and behold, this location was like across the street from the Toyota and Suzuki dealership that he had previously owned. And I spent eight years of my young adult life slaving at, right? And at the time, Suzuki was a, a blossoming franchise in the US. And Suzuki was putting pressure on that dealership. They were the number one Suzuki dealership in the country. And they're like, Suzuki's like, you have to get a it was like a little back lot at the, like the, 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 the behind the Toyota dealership, right? It was like this redheaded stepchild at the back of the Toyota dealership. And they're like, you need to build a new dealership. We'll like pay for it. Well, Suzuki will, 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 will cover some or a large portion or all of the cost to build a new dealership. We want you to, to double your, your sales. So we ended up brokering a deal and, and landing a deal with the new owner of the Toyota Suzuki dealership. And they bought the acre of land. We made like 75 grand. And their plan was to knock all those houses down and build a state-of-the-art Suzuki dealership. Um, unfortunately, 2008 rolled along. The economy fell flat on its face. And I still to this day, they own those four homes and have never built the Suzuki dealership. But oh. you still made the $75,000. We skated off into the sunset with a cool 75 racks, my man. Yeah. And uh, and learned an awful lot, right? I learned about zoning. I learned about a little bit about development. We learned about um, building a buyer's list because we had one buyer at that point. It had to be, we were looking for like uh, department stores, gas stations, convenience stores, because that's who um, I think our big, big goal would have been to find like a Ruby Tuesdays. Um, but we sold it to a car guy and car guys are historically cheap. So, you know, that's why we sold it. And even though 75 grand was a lot of money, um, had we maybe been able to find, you know, a more lucrative end buyer um, a little bit earlier before the economy went the way that it did, we might have made even more. But yeah, it all worked out. I mean, we turned a, a bad deal into a great deal. Does, uh, so does wholesaling have a place in your heart now? Like, what do you do with it now? Interrupting this episode to celebrate... Cody Schaefer, who's seeking financial freedom, you might remember him from episode 17 of this podcast. 
where he had done $30,000 on his biggest real estate wholesaling deal by actually Uber Eats driving and looking for rundown houses while he was delivering food. So the money he made from Uber Eats, he would put back into his marketing. So he used the Deal Machine app to actually pin a house and look up the owner and send mail to any rundown homes. Now we have an update. He just closed a $58,000 deal. So congrats to you, Cody. And if you guys are looking to get out of your corporate job and you want to take action on what you're learning in this podcast towards financial freedom, check out the Deal Machine app. We've got a special promotion for you if you go to dealmachine.com slash pod, where you'll actually get to send your first 35 postcards for free. And so we typically recommend finding about you know, 300 rundown homes and sending a postcard to each one of them in order to start getting some calls back that could turn into a deal. So dealmachine.com slash pod if you want to get your hands on the app that's helped Cody make $58,000. And congrats again to you, Cody. Um, does, do you ha- does Holdby be honest or do you want me to yeah, be honest? honest? Yeah, be honest. No, no, I, I don't. I, I think what I've, what I thought was that I was a car guy. Until I got out of the car business and I got into real estate. And for a long time, I thought I was a real estate guy. And I think really what I am is a, a, a meaningful relationship guy. And whether I'm selling houses or coaching somebody or like hiring somebody or firing somebody, um, I really enjoy developing new and nurturing existing meaningful relationships in my life. And sometimes that results in me buying or selling a piece of real estate, but I I don't have an emotional attachment to wholesaling or real estate. I have an emotional attachment to people and having a meaningful role in people's lives. Would you recommend so I could do wholesaling to an individual? Say they were in a position that you were in working 80 hours a week and they're coming to you, man, I need to get out of this, would you say, what would you say to them? I'd have a thousand questions first, but I think maybe what you're looking for is I think wholesale is a is a very, it's an industry with open arms. Um, regardless of your background, regardless of your, um, you know, uh, upbringing, regardless of your education level, regardless of your income, regardless of your beliefs, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your religion, wholesaling and as an industry has open arms. So um, I would tell you it's a safe place to go regardless of your background and there's endless possibilities. Um, I don't think it's for everybody. I don't, I think what a lot of people don't talk about is the, the difficult parts of so really when we talk about wholesaling, let's just call it entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. That's really what it is, right? Like whether you're a, a, a restaurant owner or a wholesaler, you own a business. And I don't think enough people talk about the the suffering sometimes that can come along with being a wholesaler or a business owner. And I think some people try and escape their W-2 um, or their job or their current business in search of freedom and happiness without really understanding it's not the job that's making you unhappy. It's your belief system surrounding that job or that career or that company that you work for. And just because you wholesale or just because you start a business is not going to make you happy. Um, 
So the short answer is, yeah, sure, why not? What do you have to lose? The long version is I'd want to understand a little bit better about what's going on now, what makes you unhappy about your current job or career choice, what you're really in search of, and then I could better tell you what I know about real estate, how that matches up with your real goals. In today's version of Eric Brewer and what you do now, does wholesaling, does it have a part in your business? Yeah, very much so, yeah. What do you, how do you utilize wholesale now? Um, so it's a great way for me to create opportunity for people. Um, the average age of my inside salespeople is 20 years old. And most of them we have found to be people with a um, competitive athlete background. Um, you can imagine at 20 years old, they have no formal education. They have an entrepreneurial spirit and they have a desire to make an impact. And a lot of times that's sort of masked by a desire to make money, but really what they're in pursuit of is, is meaningful imprint on their family or their community or their church or their local t-ball team or the school that they went to and i can i can move mountains with people like that yes. like so i love wholesaling because it gives me the ability to bring in people that are at a very impressionable age that have opted out of the conventional like go to college learn a skill then figure out what you love i think that's completely backwards i think you should Go work and travel between the ages of 18 and 22 and then decide what you really enjoy and then go to college. I think we got it all back. So I'm able to play a significant role. And at one time I was 18 to 22 years old and was confused. I was relatively miserable. I was making a bunch of money, but it wasn't rooted in any purpose or sense of identity. And I feel like wholesaling and real estate gives me a, a, a place to be able to have a positive impact on young people in those ages that are seeking identity and purpose. And uh, yeah, so I love wholesale. It's that, that creates a place for me to be able to pour into people um, at a young age and uh, you know help them make money and then understand the significance of the work that they're doing. How many sales people work under you right now? 15, 16? How many deals do they do a month? Um, as a company, we'll do over 400 a year, so 30 couple a month. It's just mind-blowing. Are you in multiple locations, or is this all in one city? Um, so it's our market's kind of weird, right? Because we have, like, when you say market, like, I'm in York County, which has, like, 400,000 people. That's, like, one-tenth of, like, Philadelphia. So I'm in eight counties that are like within an hour driving distance of where I'm sitting today. And I consider that one market. Um, and then I do business in like the suburbs of Philly, um, which is like Berks, Bucks County, Schuylkill County. Um, so I'm on like the uh, Northwest boundaries of Philadelphia. Um, and Philadelphia is like two hours straight east of me. Um, so I'm technically in two markets, I would say. I would say the seven counties here that I'm in and then the seven suburbs of Philadelphia. So two markets. I do 27 transactions a month in my home market and eight to 10 in the new market in the suburbs of Philly that I opened this year. Wow. 
I know you do 40% wholesale deals. How do you decide to use that real estate tool and what happens to the other 60%? So the other... The other 60% is about 20% I do fix and flip. The other 40% I do novations, which is, novation is a very close cousin. Um, it's an inbred cousin of wholesaling. It's basically the exact same thing, just with a different end user. Yeah, could you explain that? Because when we lined you up for this episode, uh, I wasn't even thinking about you being you know, the go-to authority for novations, which you are. Could you explain that? Yeah. Yeah. So let me give you a little history. Um, so I told you about 2006, 2007, we would buy, fix and flip, right? So if you know anything about the real estate market in 2006 and 2007, is that the easiest thing to do in the world was to get a mortgage. Like if you had a heartbeat and a bank statement, you could get a mortgage. It's part of what fueled a lot of fraud and an economic collapse, right? Um, and the, the, the economy. So prior to the, the economic crisis, no one used FHA mortgages. Like you could get 80-20 mortgages, which aren't even, they're unheard of today, right? But like in 2006, you could get an 80% first and a 20% second, 100% financing, no money down at like 5% interest with a 540 credit score. Like who would have thought those would ever go bad? So every house I was selling to a, was a non-conforming loan, 100% financing, right? It was, it was, they even had this thing called Nehemiah. It was a nonprofit where you, people would, you would, I as the seller would donate $5,000 to this nonprofit and the nonprofit would gift it to the buyer. Dude, that's like, insane. What? So I, whatever, I, I don't make the rules. I just play by them, right? It was, it was called Nehemiah. It was a down payment fund to help uh, low-income borrowers buy homes. Wild and crazy, dude. So, like, but as soon as the 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 market started to collapse, the hardest thing to do was to get a mortgage. Like, you 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 could be an 800 credit score, and you still needed 30 percent down because there was this knee-jerk reaction, right, in the marketplace to all the irresponsible lending that was done. So it went from like easiest thing to do to the hardest thing to do. So everybody had to use FHA because it's government subsidized and the, and the government wasn't going to let housing collapse. So everybody went FHA. Well, the problem with a house flipper when you're selling homes to FHA is they got this little pesky thing called seasoning, which means you got to own the property for 91 days before you can even write a contract to sell it to an FHA borrower. So I'm flipping houses in three weeks and, and get offers from FHA buyers and I can't sell it to them. So I'm like, and at this point I'm doing... 150 deals a year. So now I'm saying my average cash conversion cycle, let's say is two months. And now with everybody using FHA financing, it's six months. That clogs up the money machine significantly, right? I'm tripling basically my holding costs. And instead of carrying $5 million worth of inventory, marrying, I got to carry 20, it yeah. me out. So I started looking for solutions and my attorney was like, well, this whole deed seasoning thing is triggered when you record the deed. Stop recording the deed. I'm like, I can't, dude. I'm buying from banks. Like, what? I got to record the deed. Like, I can't do that. But he introduced me to this concept of novation, which has been around in contract law forever and ever. It's very prominent in construction. They just call it subcontracting in construction. And it's very prominent in government contracts where the government puts out a bid to build a bridge 
and a general contractor awards the bid, and then he novates the rebar and the concrete and the paving and the lines to other contractors. He replaces his obligation, which is what definition of novation is, is replacement. So I discovered novations in 2008, trying to circumvent FHA deed seasoning. It didn't work on my bank-owned short sales I was buying, but I applied it to these public auctions where I would go and I'd be the high bidder at 100 and the seller wanted 120. And that didn't work for my fix and flip. But I'm like, I think someone would pay 145 for this house the way it sits. If I could novate it, I could make 20 grand. So I started going up to the auctioneers after the auction ended and it didn't meet reserve. And I go, hey, would you let me have a key to the property? I'll give you a deposit. I'll write a contract for 120 and you let me list it on the MLS and I'll close in 90 days. And they go, well, how will that work? And I go, I don't know. My attorney's here. You want to ask him? And he'll go, well, we'll, we'll cover you the utilities. We'll prorate the taxes. And two attorneys would argue until they both felt that they got their way. And I made my first novation deal at a public auction. I paid 120. I listed it for 149. It sold for 149 and I made 22,000 bucks and closed in 65 days. And then I started it applying to every single direct to seller lead that I got. So here's, let me, let me break it down for you. Real estate wholesale, which everybody listening to this either already knows or is learning about, is the business of buying a fixer up or at a discount and assigning it to someone that'll fix that house up and try and make a profit either as a flip or a rental. And you make the fee in between. So if you buy it from the seller for 100 and you find a cash buyer that'll fix it up and pay you 115, you assign right? The mechanism that connects a wholesale deal is an assignment. The only challenge with assignment is it's not financeable. You can't sell an assignment to an FHA, VA, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac borrower. You can, however, novate your deal because when you novate, you replace your original agreement with a new agreement. And now it's an arm's length transaction that a title company will insure and an FHA lender will lend on. So, Here's what I found. If you, if you, let's say you use deal machine and you get 10 good leads, there's only one real good wholesale deal in there where someone will sell it to you at a deep enough discount where you can buy it and assign it to an investor. About 40 or 50% of those 10 leads, there's no deal. They're not ready to sell. They want way too much money. There's multiple errors or three decision makers that they can't agree and we should just plug them into long-term follow-up. However, out of those 10, there's three to four decent houses that the seller is motivated but not distressed. And that house would sell and be financeable to a retail buyer, but it can't be bought at a wholesale price. Got it. So now what you find is there's four novation deals out of every 10 leads, and there's only generally one or two wholesale opportunities out of every 10. So it kind of reminds me of whenever I, you know, got my first rental property and now, you know, a lot of the money's like tied up. I have to wait for myself to earn more money to buy the next one. You're finding that uh, wholesaling, a lot of people turn to wholesaling so that they can still, you know, do real estate deals and, and make cash without needing to have money tied up. But now you're saying when you were doing flips, you would flip the property faster than the seasoning period, which is now six months. And that money's tied up. So you can't do more deals because your money's tied up. You could do more wholesale deals in between, but through the novation technique, it does allow you to sell that, you know, to a qualified FHA buyer, which there's a lot out there, so that you can just keep going 
with more and more deals. Yeah. By the way, you said something there that's important. Let's talk about FHA right now. So in 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, the beginning of 2022, if you were a low income, low down payment, low credit score FHA buyer, you couldn't sniff a house. You were getting bullied by hedge funds. You were getting outbid by people with 20% down. You were getting um, outbid by people that would write escalation clauses and pay over the appraised value because their financing would permit it or their down payment would permit it. So if you had a 3.5% down payment and you needed 3% seller's help and you needed to have a home inspection and you needed to have an appraisal, not only in the beginning your deal was getting turned down by the seller, after about a year of that marketplace that we were in, realtors wouldn't even show you a house. So FHA borrowers couldn't participate in the low rate environment. Guess who's out in flocks in the high rate environment because it might be their only opportunity to buy a house for the next 40 years. Ding, 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 ding. FHA, VA, low down payment, low to mid credit score buyers. So every time you position a wholesale deal or you position a house and you're not making it viable for an FHA buyer, you're you're missing the most aggressive buyer in today's marketplace. All the other 20% down, very rate conscious, opportunistic buyers, they're on the sidelines. They're like, hey, rates are really high. I'll wait till they cool down, right? The people that are low to mid credit score FHA VA buyers that need seller's help and down payment assistance and they got to get a, a home inspection, this is their opportunity. Yeah. Maybe they're last, because I don't know about you, but if rates come back down to five and a half, five percent, I think the market's going to be a little bit crazier than it was. Right. Those Everyone's been holding on. And those people won't be able to compete again. They won't be able to compete again. So you got to get your deals in front of FHA buyers. They pay the most. Even in today's, they don't yep. care what the rate is. They're paying a thousand percent interest on their rental right now. Right. So to pay seven and a half percent for a mortgage on a house that they own, it's the last opportunity for them to enjoy the dream of home ownership. And they saw everybody else get rich buying homes five years ago. And now their house went up a hundred grand. And these people were they haven't made any money other than the the income they get from their their primary job. One of the things that you said was uh that stuck with me was you made seventy five bucks on that first wholesale deal that you did and, and they've still never bought the actual I uh, built the actual dealership. So an advantage of wholesaling that's yeah. very apparent to me is you get your money quickly and you can move on and go do some more deals. Do you guys have something in your business that tells you whether you should wholesale the deal or fix and flip it? And obviously the novation comes in yeah. when there's not enough equity, right, for the wholesale deal. Yeah. So let me, I wanted to, um, there was one thing you said I wanted to to clarify here. I think this is a good way to explain a, a, a novation deal. It's a wholesale style transaction, meaning you don't have to have credit, you don't have to have cash and there's no renovation and there's virtually no risk. On a property in wholesale conditions, which means it's it's not a massive fixer upper, right? It's, 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 it's okay. It's like a six out of 10 being sold to a retail buyer. So, Wholesale 
transaction on a wholesale condition property being sold to a retail buyer. That's that's like a good sort of overview to think about what innovation is. Number two would be like, how do we decipher? So risk, I think, is what you're talking about, right? When like if, if you hold a property, there's a lot of risk and you have to sustain the ups and downs of interest rates and the ups and downs of value. Wholesaling, you're in and out in 30 days. You can, you know, you can adjust as the market adjusts. You can literally, if values drop today, you can modify your offers tomorrow, right? Um, the way that we do it is we, we try and buy everything at wholesale and we try and retail everything and Novations allows us to do that. So here's, here's what happens. Let's say we get a house for a hundred and we think wholesale is 125. So I make $25,000 profit, but if I retail it, I may make 60. If I can, if, if I can't wholesale and make 50.1% 50.1% of my projected fix and flip profit, I won't wholesale. Because if I can make double the profit, there's enough protection, there's enough profit to justify me closing on it, renovating it, and taking the risk um, to go ahead and, and sell it on the open market. However, what we do is we often novate it, and I end up making 45000 and never renovate. So the best deals is when you buy at wholesale and exit at retail without ever closing on it or or renovating it, which is what innovation is. It allows you to get retail style profits without having to renovate and close on a property. So that but that's how I'll decide. If I can't make 50, 51% of my projected retail profit, then I go ahead and I close on it and gotcha. I fix it up and sell. Um, if I can make 50, 51, 61, 71, or we novate it, we make 100% of my projected retail profit, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, so the, the risks of actually flipping a house, you're subject to the market going up or down in value, and maybe the construction process takes longer than you think, so you're holding it longer, meaning that money's tied up longer, meaning you can't do more deals faster. So you're you're only taking that risk if you can make 51% more than what you would with that wholesale, straight-up wholesale deal. And if it's in good enough condition, then you'll try to use Novation to make more than the wholesale fee, but less than the construction fee, but you'll still make a bigger profit with no more additional risk. Yeah. Got it. You actually have a course, right? Where where could people go to learn more about Novations if they're curious about that? Yeah, I would say the best place to learn more about me and Novations is to follow me on Instagram. I think it may have changed my handle, but if you look me up on 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 Instagram, um, it's uh, Eric underscore Brewer underscore Invest. Um, I talk a lot about just real estate and sales and um, you know market and building a company and leadership and all that good stuff. Um, and then uh, if you really just want to cut to the chase and you want me to teach Innovations, you can just go to Brewer Method. Amazing. Well, I think this is a good place to end it, Eric. One of the most uh, accomplished guests that I think we've had on the podcast doing 400 deals per year is something I can't even fathom. If you guys want additional listening, uh, check out episode 71 on how to analyze a real estate deal. And we'll see you guys on the next episode. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks for listening to the Deal Machine Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please leave us a review and follow along wherever you're listening to your podcast.